Welcome to Living Yin, a podcast series that seeks to enlighten you about yin yoga, Chinese medicine, philosophy, and meditation. I'm Truth Robinson, and I'm a doctor of Chinese medicine and a yin yoga and meditation teacher. This podcast series seeks to unite the yin yoga practice, the anatomical theory that surrounds it, and the Chinese medicine theory which brings it all to life. My goal is to demystify Chinese medicine and to offer anatomical concepts in a digestible way, as well as offering philosophy for you to go deeper into the layers of your own consciousness. In this episode, we're going to discuss the term qi. It is a term so contorted by Chinese whispers that has led Chinese medicine to earning a spiritual or pseudoscience label. And when googled, the majority of sources will describe it as an invisible energy moving through an invisible channel. Today we'll examine historical fact and see what history can teach us. Just letting you know, this podcast was actually released secretly a week before the public release. If you'd like to get your hands on this podcast or YouTube classes a week earlier than everybody else, all you need to do is head over to livingin.com subscribe to the mailing list and get an exclusive sneak preview delivered fresh into your mailbox a week before everybody else. Everybody by now has heard of the word qi. It has become synonymous with acupuncture and now of course yin yoga too. You can't really separate the two but what does it really mean? Current translations and subsequent perceptions of the term qi or qi in our current vocabulary and dictionaries will usually return terms such as energy or vital force. Dr. Manfred Pockort says that over two and a half thousand years of Chinese medicine literature that has already been published, 32 different types of qi have already been identified, making it very difficult to isolate exactly what this term means. Interestingly, Dr. Donald Lee Kendall, in his paper, Energy, Meridian Misconceptions of Chinese Medicine mentions that almost all of the misunderstandings about Chinese medicine revolves around the ubiquitous use of this character qi to mean energy. Such an interesting point, because pretty much everyone now uses this term and it's hard to imagine what else we would call it. I have to admit, this was one of the most difficult ideas for me to understand when learning Chinese medicine in the first place, because everyone kept calling it energy. For us to truly understand where this misconception came from, we need to examine the history of Chinese medicine arriving in the West. The earliest first-hand account on the anatomical and physiological basis of Chinese medicine by a Western physician was provided by William Tenreiner, who in 1683 spent two years in Japan. Tenreiner observed a Chinese hydraulic device that demonstrated how blood continually circulates inhaled air and nutrients by means of the blood vascular system. He also learned from Chinese medicine that the continual branching of larger vessels into smaller vessels was essential to distributing blood throughout the body and that nerves were involved as well. Keeping in mind, the Chinese had already covered blood circulation in detail in the Huangdi Neijing two and a half thousand years earlier, but was only discovered in the West in 1628. The details of the Huangdi Neijing were depicted in the four charts that Tenreiner returned to the West with that depicted the arterial and venous maps of the body, including their connection to the organs. 
This is our first encounter with the Jing law. The term Jing is translated as to pass through or pathway, and law means network. So the Jing law is what we now know as the Chinese meridians. Wow. So when the Chinese were drawing their invisible meridians, what they were actually doing was illustrating the flow of blood and vital substances around the body and how they connected to each of their organs, which is what we now call the flow of qi between the organ. This first encounter with Chinese medicine did not have a significant impact on Western culture, and it wasn't until Georges Soule de Morant travelled to China in 1901 and stayed for 16 years that we got our first glimpse into TCM. During this time, he developed significant skills in the practice of acupuncture, which he taught and practiced upon returning to France. He was also the author of fundamentally significant books, which became one in 1957. One of Soule de Morant's legacies was that he interpreted the Chinese character qi as energy or vital energy. The more common translation of qi is actually air or vapor. He also created the term meridian, which of course is a French word meaning circle of longitude, but actually has no Chinese equivalent. The original term in Chinese is jing, as in jing luo or jing mai, as we previously discussed, which actually denotes a vessel. He believed meridians were an additional circulatory system having no relation to the nervous, circulatory, or lymphatic systems. Interesting. The first historical contact we had with the Jing Lo was the four charts depicting the flow of blood through the arteries and veins and organs, and now we have it translated into meridians and no relation to the nervous, circulatory, or lymphatic system. That's quite a conflict in definition. So where did this idea come from? Why did he make this leap? According to Kendall, it was said to come from Sule de Morant's belief that qi was identical to the Hindu concept of prana, which he considered meant vital energy. He theorized that this concept arrived in China along with Buddhism between the 3rd and 4th centuries. Contrary to this assumption though, the Chinese theory on the cardiovascular circulation of air and blood was established at least 600 to 700 or more years before the introduction of Buddhism into China. So there was no way that this translation could have come from there. After all was said and done, Sule de Marant did finally conclude that his representation of qi as energy was done because of lack of a better word. He also admitted that the blood vessels did supply blood and energy, what he refers to as qi, to all the cells of the body. This is understandable because at that point in history, electron microscopes had not been invented, so converting potential energy sources like food to what Sule de Marant called qi was thought to be in the realm of possibility beyond science. Later, of course, thanks to advances in technology, we discovered that this magical process was actually done by the Krebs cycle and the ATP which fueled the cells. Soule de Marant was definitely in the ballpark then, but had founded some obvious misunderstandings which went on to become fundamental theory to TCM and is popular thought even today. Even though such prominent translators of Chinese medical texts like Paul Unschuld have stated that, the core Chinese concept of qi bears no resemblance to the Western concept of energy. If you go back to the TCM primary text from 2,500 years ago, known as the Huangdi Neijing, you can read a more contemporary understanding. It describes the term for qi of the lungs as da or kong qi, otherwise known as great air, which we all know as oxygen. 
and this would be combined with the gu qi or essence of food and grain qi from the digestion. Again, we know this as glucose and other vitamins and minerals. After a series of transformations, it would become zheng qi or the qi of the channels and vessels. This is the qi flowing around the body and is a combination of the air we breathe and the food we eat. Alright, from that, I have to admit that this sounds very much like what is actually happening on a physiological level and not on an existential level, which is one that we would have if we were talking about qi as energy. Unfortunately though, Sule de Marant's mistranslated metaphysical theory of the body's primary energy unit laid out the framework for what is considered today as qi. A lot of Western sources, whether it be Chinese medicine or yin yoga textbooks, will talk of qi in a metaphysical sense. But what does this really mean? The book, Spark in the Machine, written by Dr. Daniel Kion, who is both a Western medicine and Chinese medicine doctor, reiterates our understanding that qi is food plus air that creates an energy, or as he puts it, metabolism. Although he mentions that qi is more than metabolism, as it is at the same time both intelligent and organized. Qi is then a physical state and a process, but also is imbued with a sense of direction to inspire change or an inbuilt knowing. This is demonstrated by the moment of conception when the cells begin to divide, or meiosis, which is still a mystery to medical doctors today. They are unsure as to what exactly the knowing is that inspires meiosis to transpire. So as Dr. Daniel Kion says, Qi shares more with philosophy than with science. So let's look at a more philosophical explanation to try and see if there's any truth to this metaphysical claim. In Ted Kapchuk's book, The Web That Has No Weaver, he writes, Qi is not some immutable material, nor is it a vital energy. We might think of it as somewhere in between, a kind of matter on the verge of becoming energy, or energy at the point of materializing. Kapchuk then goes on to say that things change because of something in Chinese medicine called the ganying, or resonance, of the qi. He explains this further by saying that the qi of the sun, rain, soil resonate with the qi of the seed to bring forth a plant that already contains the germ. Things energize each other. Through resonance, one qi evokes another qi. So Kapchuk is suggesting that qi is at the same time a catalyst to inspire transformation and the potential of the subsequent transformation. That is, it is the matter and the potential that matter contains to transform. But he also mentions another aspect, an inherent knowing to inspire the change a kind of invisible instruction which is directing all of this. This idea is suggested in the book Nourishing Destiny by Jarrett, who writes, Qi is a larger concept still, and suggests that Qi is a unique aspect of the Tao as it manifests into physiological function. Now Jarrett mentions, if we deconstruct the character for Tao and read each part out, it would describe the Tao as the way one comes to see and understand oneself. This really shows the beauty of a pictogram language. Let's just hear that again. The way one comes to see and understand oneself. Hmm, is qi then an aspect of a higher energy and that by aligning ourselves to it, it will help to foster health? 
The Taoist masters certainly worked with this exact purpose. In their search for immortality, they were trying to align themselves with the perfect way of acting within their life and refining how they were interacting mentally with themselves. This seems to be hinting to not only a more aligned way of living physically, but the power of the mind on our state of health. Is Qi's knowing that is inspiring the change upon the material simply the mind acting upon the flesh? Before we go any further into the world of higher consciousness, let's first look into a field of science called epigenetics. The term epi means above, and so epigenetics is the science of the mind acting upon the genes of the body. Every single day, cells in our muscles, bones, and brain, etc. will die. And when they die, they get replaced by stem cells. Now, stem cells are simply embryonic cells, but once you're born, they are now called stem cells. According to Dr. Bruce Lipton, if you isolate a stem cell in a petri dish, regardless of the genes or the DNA, that is, the instructions of that cell, the culture medium in the petri dish will determine what the stem cell will become. In our body, blood is the culture medium, and so the fate of each stem cell is determined by the blood, and the blood chemistry is determined by the brain. Each and every moment, the brain is interpreting the world around us and creating chemistry. When you feel love, the body releases growth hormone, which means even more cells will grow. When you feel fear, you stimulate the fight-or-flight nervous system, release stress hormones, and create inflammation within the immune system. So epigenetics is telling us that genes do not activate themselves. Rather, their environment determines whether they are activated, and so our beliefs control our biology, not our genetics. So if we change the way we perceive the world, we can change our chemistry and our state of health. This very concept is discussed within Chinese medicine when considering the aspect of the emotions that are housed within each of the organs. The term the Chinese have given this concept is Shen, which translates into spirit and is said to be housed within the heart. The heart is at the very center of life in the human being and the very center of the self. It is a collection of all perceptions, sensations, information, memories, knowledge, tendencies, ideas, thoughts, desires, and emotions. It is the whole of the emotional life, but also the mind, the psychology, and the intelligence. Elizabeth Rochat de Laval, in her talk Art of the Heart, says that the reactions of the heart depend on the inner disposition, tendencies, ideas, emotions, etc., which are within the heart, and that the heart is responsible for the correctness or for any distortion in the course of qi. Qi, then, is more than just the material substance that moves through our blood vessels and bodily system. That is both the trigger for change and the substance that changes are made of. Qi is also the inherent knowing or intelligence which inspires the process to occur in the first place. These processes do not take place due to embedded instructions in our genetic makeup, rather depend on a catalyst or culture medium within the body to initiate growth or destruction. As we have learnt, this catalyst is the heart or shen within Chinese medicine and the brain within Western medicine. So if the heart, or let's say the mind for argument's sake, can influence the course of qi or vital substances and their ability to do their function, 
then we are now starting to see a lot of parallels between TCM and Western biomedical science. Ultimately, Richard de la Valle says that our state of health is dependent on the way that the heart is able to follow the natural order, which is almost a perfect definition for finding harmony with the Tao. This same process is the way Taoist masters have endeavored to cultivate qi, discover immortality, and align themselves with the Tao. So what does qi mean for us, yin yoga practitioners, and how do we connect with it? We know, of course, that this term qi is a mistranslation. We know that it is the material potential for transformation of the vital substances within the body, but also the resonance that inspires the transformation to occur. We also know that the health of your qi is indivisible with the spirit or mind, and when you are more, let's say, aligned, then your state of qi will be harmonious and healthy. I'd like to end by reflecting upon Jarrett's translation of the Tao. For me, this is a true definition of how we can harmonize and nourish our state of chi. It says, The way one comes to see and understand oneself. Just another heads up, this podcast was actually released secretly a week before the public release. If you'd like to get your hands on this podcast or YouTube classes a week earlier than everybody else, all you need to do is head over to livingin.com, subscribe to the mailing list, and get an exclusive sneak preview delivered fresh into your mailbox a week before everybody else. Thanks for joining me. I'm Truth Robinson. You can follow me on Instagram at Truth Robinson, or if you'd like to train with me, go to livingyin.com. One last thing, by submitting a review on iTunes, you're giving the gift of this podcast to so many other people. And even though I love seeing all the beautiful reviews, and I really do, it's way more exciting to know that your review is now stimulating so many yin yoga journeys all around the world. That has to be the easiest gift you have ever given.